Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're talking about seed oils and vegetable oils, polyunsaturated fatty acids, linoleic acid, pretty controversial topic. And for this, we have a bit of a treat because this is another compilation podcast where we're going to talk to uh, Nicola Guess, to Troclasian, to Ethan Weiss, to Ben Bickman, to Raphael Sartori, and to Amber O'Hearn. So quite a compilation of people with different levels of expertise, different specific areas of interest, and different opinions on sort of the conclusion of all the evidence. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through what does the evidence support and how do, how do these individuals interpret the evidence, what it means for them as individuals and what it means for them potentially as clinicians and what they recommend to other people. So I want to lay the groundwork a little bit about why this is such a controversial topic. And when I was uh, you know, in medical school and residency and fellowship, there was no question. Vegetable oils were healthy. They are healthy. They lower LDL, they lower cardiovascular risk, and they are a, basically a health food that we should be eating more of. Then as I started to learn more about it and hear different sides of the equation, I learned about the mechanistic data. And the mechanistic data of regarding linoleic acid is, is concerning. I mean, the, the pro-oxidation, how it can change the structure of, of membranes, how it could potentially induce insulin resistance, um, how it can induce inflammation. And then there's also some randomized controlled trials, some much older trials, the Minnesota coronary experiment, the Sydney Diet Heart Study, which showed um, a worsening of cardiovascular and all-cause mortality for those who ate higher levels of linoleic acid. But the observational data that we have suggests that there's a benefit to eating more linoleic acid and more polyunsaturated fatty acids and seed oils. So how do you, how do you balance and weigh all this uh, conflicting evidence? One way that I think is interesting to look at it is if we, if we had started with the mechanistic data, um, we probably would have never even gotten to the trial data. Like why even, why even study something that looks so bad from a mechanistic standpoint? But because of the way uh, vegetable oils came about, and you know, uh, Nina Teicholz does a great job talking about sort of the history of it, and it's a, <laughs> it's a seeded history, pun intended to say the least, but it came about in, in, in a roundabout way. I won't go through it all here, um, and you know, there's money involved, right? And an industry sponsorship involved. But the point is it became a big part of, of the U.S. diet um, sort of before any of the concerns really, really came up. And it was sort of already labeled as being healthy. And then we had to sort of backtrack to say, well, is it really? So that's one interesting thing is just sort of the, the sequence of events that brought it to human consumption. Then you look at how it's increased dramatically over, over recent times um, with you know, a thousand-fold increase in some studies showing um, with, you know, depending on how you measure it, there's some controversy there. But it's clear this is a new food, right? This is not an evolutionary food that, that we evolved eating. Um, so why would we think we can create new foods that should replace old foods? And a big part of this comes down to the fear of saturated fat, right? A lot of these observational trials, observational studies, I should say, sh um, claim that if you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fatty acids, it's a net benefit. So a lot of this has to do with sort of the fear and the concern of saturated fats, which we'll hear uh, some of our, our colleagues here talk about, specifically Dr. Ethan Weiss. But if you take it from a different standpoint, 
and, and are not concerned about saturated fat, that you look at the evidence and the observational data against saturated fat is poor quality evidence and the effect size is so small and it's, all, it's almost always studied in a mixed diet, hypercaloric, high carb type diet, that if you then take that to the other extreme, so to speak, of the low carb diet and where there's really not much evidence that saturated fat is of concern in that setting, um, and even if it is, again, the effect size would be so small that do we really even need to replace it? So you can go through all these different permutations about um, vegetable oils, whether they're needed, whether they need to replace things, but it still can frequently leave people confused, saying to themselves, well, what should I do? If I eat out at a restaurant and get seed oils, am I hurting myself? If I eat a salad dressing with seed oils, am I hurting myself? I think we all can agree if you're getting seed oils from, you know, potato chips and baked goods and, you know, the ultra processed higher carb foods, then that you certainly want to avoid, whether for seed oils or for not, you want to avoid those foods. But what if you're eating it in a more moderate way? And as we'll hear uh, Dr. Guest talk about, you know, they have the convenience and the uh, inexpensive factor. So if you're comparing it to avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, there's a significant cost difference. So for someone who's in a position where they can't afford maybe some of the other versions, they're led towards the path of seed oils. Well, you know, then you could say, what about butter? What about lard? What about the saturated fats that you could also use? So it really makes a difference to say, how do we make all, how do we make conclusions from all the evidence out there? So that's a bit of a long-winded introduction and setup. So now let's just jump right into these interviews and we're gonna hear the series of these six interviewers and see what we can come to as a conclusion and hopefully be able to evaluate the whole picture, both sides of the story with all the nuance that we need. Now let's hear from Dr. Ethan Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a cardiologist and a researcher at UCSF. So he sees both sides of the story, you can say. He does research, he interprets research, and he also takes care of patients. So he has to frame his message in a way to best take care of his patients. Now, one thing that I love about Dr. Weiss, and I hope you'll appreciate, is that he speaks his mind and he's not afraid to put things bluntly. And that's what you're definitely gonna hear from him in this segment. But what I love about him is his perspective. You know, he wants to do the most meaningful and impactful thing for his patients. And I think that's gonna be his underlying message here about vegetable oils. But let's hear, let's hear what Dr. Weiss has to say. All right, so Dr. Weiss, vegetable oils. Seems like such a controversial topic. Although I remember in cardiology fellowship, and I'm sure you do too, there was no controversy. It was PUFAs, vegetable oils are good. Reduce LDL, good for cardiovascular health, good for health in general, no question. Only since I've been involved in the low-carb world have I started to sort of wake up to other data that su could suggest otherwise, but it's not conclusive because there's mechanistic data, there's observational data, there's randomized control data. You can interpret it differently depending on which data you focus more on. So I'm curious to get your opinion, how you see this whole um, this whole topic of vegetable oils and where you land. Uh, okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'll tell you in the nicest way possible. I hate this topic, um, but uh, obviously it comes up a lot. So I'll give you my take on it. Yeah. Uh, I'll start by saying I think what's obvious to you and most people is that nutrition is, is zero sum. Meaning, you know, if you eat the same number of calories a day, you change one macronutrient, you're going to change something else. You can't change it in, in isolation. Same goes for fat. If you're going to eat a certain percentage of your calories daily from fat, it's zero sum. If you're going to change the amount of saturated fat that you or saturated saturated fatty acid containing fats 
of foods containing saturated fatty acids, you're gonna if you're gonna impact what happens if you keep it the same number total, you're gonna impact what what happens with MUFAs and PUFAs. So we're sort of stuck in this world of trying to understand complicated things that are where multiple things are moving at the same time. So I think much of what we probably know here is not real. And it's because, again, most of the time, if you're increasing unsaturated fats, let's forget monounsaturated fats for a second, because I think we're probably, there's consensus over that, but let's just take polys. And we'll take N3s just to even make this easier, right? So we'll get rid of fish oil and uh, and just focus on, on you know, pure saturated, uh, sorry, uh, vegetable oils. Pure omega-6. Um, yeah, yeah, omega-6. So you'll, you're going to, if you increase that, you're decreasing one of the other two. So is the impact there a benefit of what, you know, whatever increased amount of uh, omega-6 fatty acid you're eating, or is it a benefit of decreasing saturated fat or potentially decreasing monounsaturated fat if that's what you do? So I'm sort of stuck with this, like, I don't even know how to begin to interpret any of this stuff. That's number one. Number two, I, I think the dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And I sort of have a very hard time believing that, unless you're chugging bottles of like vegetable oil or canola oil, that this is really a meaningful conversation. I sort of think people have like made this into something. And frankly, I'm going to say it directly because I think there are a group of people out there who've sort of decided that this is the scourge of all human health. And this increase in vegetable oil consumption in the United States over the past however many years is responsible for all bad things that have happened, including like politics. And that just is like such nonsense because I don't know anyone who's like, pounding vegetable oil. Like, I, I just can't believe that this, we're ta- the quantities of stuff that we're talking about here are meaningful. It's really very similar to the conversations that we have about eggs, where like, you know, it's, again, we're talking about minuscule effect sizes in either direction. And you'd have to eat a lot of eggs for this to be meaningful. So that's, those are my two sort of general things. I'm happy to like dive in a little bit deeper, but I'm telling you off the bat that I don't really care about this conversation because I think it doesn't matter. Now, one last point. I don't use a lot of vegetable oils. And the reason is that I use two oils in my life and and that's because that I like them. And so one is olive oil and I use that all the time, whether I'm cooking with it or using it on like a dressing. And then when I am cooking with oils and like especially at high heat, the one oil that I tend to use the most is avocado oil. So I'm sort of talking out of both sides of my mouth here if you really want to put a gun to my head and ask me like, why don't I use vegetable oils in cooking? I can't answer it other than I just don't. Well, so there's what you do for yourself. Well, first of all, thank you for being so blunt. I I love that. And I really appreciate that that about you. And then there's, there's what you do for yourself, which you don't necessarily have to defend. You're allowed to have opinions and and make emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. But when you counsel a patient and when you're talking to that patient in front of you, then you probably have to be a little bit more objective and not so emotional. So what do you tell your patients about vegetable oils versus olive oil or avocado oil? I say to ignore it. Ignore the controversy. Ignore the day, ignore the conversation. Pretend it doesn't happen. Because again, they're, they're just like nutrition is zero sum and fat intake is zero sum, our time is zero sum. And, and what we can convey to our patients as important messages is zero sum. So if I'm going to, it's like, you know, as a parent, I, you know, my wife and I decided early on that we were going to find like two or three messages that we really wanted our kids to take. Like, don't get in a car with somebody who's been drinking, right? Yeah. Like, whatever, you can go on and on. Like, you can, I don't want to, 
get too personal. But that, actually, I want to get like, those later because like, I want to. <laughs> I right, want to know what like, to tell my kids. That but. was one. Like you know, that like we were like we're going to invest a lot of energy in that message. So as a physician, I have a few messages that I invest a lot of energy in, and those are my like go to things where I think like this is a really big impact, and I want to make sure that this is the thing that I spend my time talking about and that my patients spend their time thinking about and trying to kind of enable and enact. One of those things is not how much vegetable oil they're using in their cooking or how much they're drinking because I just don't see it as being a problem. So uh, again, it's not a conversation that comes up from my end. Now, are there patients who come to me with this question? Yeah, of course, because people read the internet and they see the story because the story is all over the place. And so they will come to me and ask me, what do you think I should do? Or they'll tell me, I don't, you know, I think vegetable oils are toxic and I'm worried about that they're all oxidized and they're causing all kinds of problems and, da, 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 and um, what should I do? And uh, I tell them what I just told you. Wow. Excellent. I, that really helps put it in perspective. I think for it's good for people to see the perspective of someone who spends their day and spends their time trying to do what's best for people, but having to prioritize where you put your efforts. Because if we try and prioritize everything, then really maybe nothing gets done. So really trying to prioritize yeah. maximum impact. And this isn't it. Same thing goes for like, you know, if you were to draw a, you know, three circles of take three diet camps and look at the intersection in these Venn diagrams of sort of where most of us tend to agree when it comes to nutrition. I mean, these are the places where I think we should be spending our time. So, you know, number one, I think people would say, let's try to minimize the amount of processed food and maximize the amount of whole food that we eat. I think that's something that's where there's general consensus, whether you're a vegan or a carnivore. Yeah. Right. Mostly. I think most people, even like very, very, you know, devote, I don't want to speak for them because, but even, you know, hardcore vegetarians and vegans probably would are, agree that added sugar is not great for your health. Right. Like, so two principles, right. So that I think you'd find general consensus around almost everybody, which is to try to avoid processed food and added sugar. And I think you might be able to even add a third one, which is to avoid, it's sort of a mix of the two, but to avo avoid refined carbohydrates. So I don't know a lot of people other than this like very narrow little corner of the internet where people are like really focused on like the oil that you put, you know, in the pan before you cook your broccoli or, um, you know, what you'd put on your salad dressing. And again, I don't think there are that many people putting canola oil on their salad dressing. I just don't think it's probably as big of a problem as you might be led to believe by going through Google and looking at some of these, you know, things that have been written about it. Well, I promised he was just going to call it like he sees it, not pull any punches, and he certainly delivered. And it's interesting the perspective he brings to uh, this whole concept of vegetable oils, that there's evidence all over the place, but really when it comes down to clinical importance for his patients, it doesn't even move the radar. It's not even on his list of things to talk about. When people ask him about it, he, he, he makes it more like a non-issue because it's just he doesn't feel it's that strong of a – of a push either way. And this is what we're going to hear more about, about not just the direction of where the evidence goes, but the magnitude and the degree of the evidence. So although after hearing uh, Dr. Weiss speak, you may think the rest of the podcast here is kind of irrelevant if it's a non-issue, but we're going to keep going and we're going to hear other opinions and dig into it a little bit deeper and get into the science. So let's see what's up next. Next, we're going to hear from Nicola Guess. Now, Nicola is a registered dietitian and a PhD. 
She's based in London where she has her own practice, but she's also a researcher. She's an associate professor at the University of Westminster, a research fellow at King's College London, and head of nutrition research at the Dasman Diabetes Institute in Kuwait. So this puts her in a unique position because she specializes in the prevention and management of type 2 diabetes. She specializes in nutrition research. She actually does the trials uh, specifically for nutrition research, and she counsels individuals and treats individuals as a dietitian. So she's got this unique perspective. So let's hear more about what Nicola has to say about vegetable oils and seed oils. Um, so, so in terms of how do we interpret all of the different kinds of evidence? Well, you have to do what you should do as a scientist is look at each of those trials, each of those bits of evidence and judge them on their merits. So as much as people in general talk about observational epidemiological studies being very poor quality evidence, it depends on what you're looking at. And actually one of the strengths of the research or the observational research with vegetable oils is that we have a biomarker really for, for a linoleic acid intake, which in the US population basically is vegetable oil. We know that. And so you're not relying on the usual self-reported intake. Um, which is a major strength. And it also helps because you can follow people over a long period of time. And finally, you can look at dietary intake if it changes and whether it doesn't change. So for example, if you do a randomized control trial, even a good one, maybe you're looking at a couple of years with the really strong data sets that we have in observational research, you can look at tens of thousands of people uh, and have some idea of what they were eating every couple of years over this period of time. So yes, that's observational, but with linoleic acid, so with vegetable oils, we have that biomarker, so we're not relying on memory. So I actually think some of the, some of the best evidence for the role of vegetable oil in development of cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes, whatever it is, some of the best evidence actually is the observational research in this case. And when you talk about a biomarker, you mean being able to measure in the blood the, the level of linoleic acid, essentially? Well, you can do it in different ways. I mean, one of the things that people often use um, is the um, phospholipid content, say, for example, in adipose tissue. And that gives mm -hmm. you a, an indication of longer term, I think, intake of, of linoleic acid. But again, if you're going back every couple of years with, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect biomarker. It's not telling you exactly how much people were having, but we know... Um, and other people have shown this, that the the phospholipid composition does change in response to vegetable oil consumption or, or um, linoleic acid consumption. So it gives you a lot of confidence that you are measuring what you want to be measuring in a large number of people over a long period of time. Yeah, it's a great point because when you talk about food frequency questionnaires or food recall and, you know, sort of like marking more what you think you should be eating rather than what you are eating, a fat biopsy doesn't lie. And so that's that's a great point. Right. And I also think there's another factor about vegetable oil and observational research that gets missed. And a, a big problem with observational research is stuff like fruits and veggies, certain high fiber foods, which kind of have a health halo around them. And very often the kind of person eating them is living a very different life to someone not eating 10 right. portions of fruit and veg a day. And that's less likely with vegetable oil because it's found in such a range of food sources. Yeah, so that's the other interesting part about vegetable oils that we talk about it as if it's one thing. 
but whether you're cooking with a seed oil or whether you're eating you know, chips and pastries and processed food with vegetable oils, you would think it would have completely separate results. So does the literature speak to that, like that it matters where you get your, your vegetable oil from? Well, here again is the, is the drawback of observational research is that the only way to get that data is by asking people what they had. And then you come into the inherent problems of people maybe not wanting to say, oh, I got it from pastries, I got it from this food. Like they might tend to say, oh, I got it from nuts and seeds, which of course also have linoleic acid and the safflower oil, for example. But I think in general, I mean, all of us, none of us are ever gonna claim that all of these pastries are good for us. No one's saying that at all. But the, the scientific question of, do we need to be concerned about vegetable oils? I think that the observational research is a very strong answer to that in saying, no, we don't need to be concerned. And as counterintuitive as it might sound, because people think of these things as unnatural or processed or whatever words we use, the data doesn't lie. And as counterintuitive as it is, and as much as people might not like it, the overwhelming evidence in those trials suggests it's protective against cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. And then, so when you see some of this mechanistic data that suggests um, pretty strongly that it's pro-oxidative and um, can, you know, incorporate into fat cells and cause uh, inflammation, um, which are mechanistic, cell, uh, mechanistic studies, not human outcome studies, do you think it just doesn't play out enough, like the signal isn't strong enough? Or how do you, how do you sort of interpret the mechanistic, the mechanistic data from the human perspective? I mean, this comes back to the tough question and the difficulty of translating in vitro work. So work in the bench, work on the lab to what happens in a human. Because obviously, as you know, the body is complex. The, the processing and metabolizing that goes on constantly changes the, the concentration of different compounds everywhere. So for me, I mean, maybe this is my bias because I'm a human researcher and I only do clinical trials in humans. So I apologize to anyone if, if they don't like my answer. I want to look at what happens in a human. Can we measure anything meaningful? And so there has been loads of concern about the inflammatory properties of the vegetable oil from rodent data. Uh, and quite rightly, researchers in humans or of humans have looked at this. So they've said, well, okay, if this happens in rodents, we should be concerned. Let's have a look, let's test this. And to my knowledge, there have been 14 trials that have tested this, and none of them have shown that it raises inflammatory factors. Um, and you have the question, what do we mean by inflammation? There's really no clear definition, but generally tumor necrosis factor alpha, the interleukins, et cetera. Not one of those trials have shown that vegetable oils, even at a high consumption, uh, raise these inflammatory markers. I mean, to be clear, none of them have shown that they've reduced these inflammatory markers compared to other fat sources. So it just looks to me like this inflammatory idea is is not something that we need to be concerned about in vivo. Okay, well, that's a good way to say it. Now, now what about the trials that say, um, well, not trials, they're the observational studies that say by substituting saturated fat with polyunsaturated fatty acids, you reduce cardiovascular risk. And so one of my qualms is that that suggests, just that wording suggests that it's an interventional trial substituting one thing for another, which it's not. It's more of like a mathematical computation that what they found from their observational data, if you hypothetically would have substituted, do you find that to be um, credible, strong data? I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I mean, and so what, what I always 
find is unhelpful for me and I hope the audience is when people who aren't experts in an area offer their opinion. So I'm not going to offer my strong opinion on, on the statistics of those studies. But what we do have, and I'm a trialist, we do have trial data where there have been substitutes. To my knowledge, like most of them have been comparing butter with a vegetable oil or a very high linoleic acid um, oil. And those show, and some of these are very high quality trials, that there is improvement in insulin signaling measured in the highest quality way we can. So that links to insulin resistance. We get a reduction in liver fat um, and all of the good things that we care about with respect to cardiovascular disease. And so those are very high quality trials where all the foods were provided. So it gives you confidence that people were following those diets. Um, they measured biomarkers for intake. They controlled weight. So that wasn't a confounding factor. And those tell us that replacing butter with a uh, vegetable or oil, linoleic acid, is beneficial for those things. Now, to be clear, the effect size isn't huge. It's not like you go from having a fatty liver to having zero fat, but the direction of effect is consistent. And this has been shown by different independent groups. I like that about your answer, how you clarify what the effect size is, because some people would just leave it as it's beneficial and make us assume it's an enormous benefit. So if the effect size is small, and then factoring in what the rest of the, the background diet is also can complicate things. You know, of course, people in the low-carb world, myself included, would argue, well, if it's not a true low-carb diet, then, and if it's not, you know, maybe a hypocaloric diet, then you might have different findings. Do you think those nuances matter as well, interpreting the results? Yes, they probably do. But it's worth mentioning there is a hypercaloric feeding trial that shows looking at liver fat, again, that the polyunsaturated fats are protective against liver fat deposition, whereas saturated fats are not. So you get a, a rise in liver fat if you overfeed with saturated fat, whereas that doesn't occur with polyunsaturated fat. But I do think the effect size is an important thing to always consider here. And it's one of the things that makes nutrition so controversial uh, and qu quite difficult to interpret um, because you don't want to pretend that making this one simple switch is dramatically going to change something. But what you are looking for, I think, is consistency of results and direction of effect. And again, looking at the highest quality mechanistic. So I'm talking at MRs to look at liver fat, clamps to look at insulin signaling, you know, measuring things in a really isochloric way. Those very good quality trials show that same direction of effect. Vegetable oil replacing very high palmitic acid, for example, foods, is looks like a good thing. Now, in a world where we have olive oil and good data to suggest the oleic acid or you know olive oil in general or, or oleic acid can be very beneficial from cardiovascular standpoint, general health standpoint, do you as an individual and also as a clinician see any role though? I mean, we have this huge debate over, over vegetable oils and seed oils. Do you even see a role for them in the modern diet when we have other alternatives like olive oil or avocado oil? I mean, this comes down to a question of personal choice. I mean, so, so there's two questions to ask here. One, what does the scientific literature tell us about something? And then two, what should people be eating? Um, and, th and there's a price, huge price difference here between olive oil and vegetable oils. Right. So for a family who can't afford olive oil, um, which, I mean, if you were living in Spain, it's, you know, one euro for a delicious like three liter bottle, but in the UK and the US and other countries, it's very expensive. So if you're a family making those decisions, why worry about 
something that doesn't do any harm. I mean, if you if, if we look at the data and say there's no reason, so far as we can tell, to be worried about vegetable oil, why worry about it? Um, because if we do that, then people could potentially be going to other options, and even people could be saying, "Oh my God, vegetable oil is terrible. I can't afford olive oil." or the healthier high fat oils, let me have some carbohydrate instead so I can have a, a lower fat, lower mm -hmm. oil diet. So all of these things play out and you just have to keep going back to what does the evidence say and what does the individual themselves want to do? What can they afford? How do they like to cook? Um, so I see no reason to tell people, oh, you should have vegetable oil in, in preference to these other uh, monounsaturated uh, fat rich oils or tell them not to. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and now what about from an individual perspective? And again, this isn't going to be very science-based, but from experience, do you think there are people who have a sensitivity to linoleic acid, omega-6 fatty acids, similar to like some people have a gluten sensitivity? Do you, do you see that in your practice at all? I've never seen it. And honestly, I haven't got it. This is not my area of expertise at all. So I haven't read anything about it. Yeah. So what's your, what's your overall advice to people who, who are sort of confused by the whole, um, the debate back and forth about linoleic acid? What's, what's your like to the point uh, advice to them? There is no convincing evidence that there is anything to be concerned about with regard to cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes with a with the consumption of vegetable oils. Well, as you can see, Dr. Nicola Guess is very strong in her convictions that the Human clinical evidence does not show convincing harm from omega-6 vegetable oils, linoleic acid. And she's clear to, to say she's focusing on human data. And that's really what we should care about, right? Because we are humans. Um, now, she does bring up some inter very interesting points, though. For observational data, when you're measuring a marker in your blood or in a fat biopsy or something, that is better data than food frequency questionnaires. But we have to be honest, there's still a healthy user bias that we cannot overcome in those studies. So it still is relatively weak evidence just based on that alone. She's also clear to talk about the magnitude of the difference, not just the direction, but the degree of the difference. And she's, she's clear to admit that it is small, and I think that's important as well. And then when she talks about inflammation, you know, she's clear to talk about the that there is no one definition of inflammation, but what is generally accepted as clinically important inflammation by blood markers that detect inflammation, there is no evidence that um, omega-6 or linoleic acid increase those markers. And that's different from saying, you know, biopsies and animal studies and other measures of inflammation, because there is some evidence of that. Uh, but as we, as we hear that um, inflammation isn't a uh, supply-driven process, but more of a demand-driven process. And we're going to hear about that from um, Dr. Ben Bickman and Amber O'Hearn. So now let's hear from more of our experts and get some other different opinions. Next, let's hear from Dr. Tro. Now, hopefully you know of Dr. Tro from previous Diet Doctor podcasts and also his, uh, you can say, outspoken Twitter profile. It's clear he is a very passionate and outspoken proponent for his patients and for the benefits of a low-carb lifestyle. And he has a very practical approach to how he thinks about omega-6 and linoleic acid, uh, like I think we see from a number of clinicians on this topic. So let's hear what Dr. Tro has to say about this. I think it's, it's more difficult for me to come up with firm conclusions, and I'll tell you why. When you look at some of the mechanistic data and interventional data, uh, it looks like seed oils, particularly ones that uh, uh, kind of... Uh, 
you know, basically degrade or become oxidized, right? These can uh, cause oxidation, cause an increase in reactive oxygen species and can cause inflammation. Um, they, there's been some studies that if you replace, if you take patients with fatty liver or diabetes and you give them, um, you know, olive oil instead of their conventional uh, soybean oil, which is, you know, uh, the study was done in India where they replaced these oils and measured the out in the outcomes. There was some improvement in their diabetes and some other markers. So it seems like in short-term studies and mechanistic data that there's this improvement potentially in metabolic health, potentially in um, you know inflama you know inflammation. Now you have to juxtapose that with some of the other data that's existed. So there's population-based data that's been actually corroborated with fat biopsies where they literally look at the fats in uh, people in people and see how much omega-6 uh, fats are there. And they found that, you know, a higher omega-6 content in the fat is actually associated with improved mortality. So, and if you look at some of the population-based data, uh, you may find that these oils may um, decrease uh, LDL right, which has been implicated in cardiovascular disease. So the problem is, and I don't want to give too much credence to any one of these, uh, I think the worst case scenario you can get is a highly refined oil that's been uh, heated and cooled, cooled, right? If you want it to stick to our ideals, there's the least possible chance of oxidation in cold-pressed oils, right? Okay, so if you wanted to theorize a potential benefit, my potential benefit, you know, the, what I do myself is, you know, stick with olive oil and avocado oil. And I try to uh, stick with varieties that aren't cut with other oils. You know, there's a big scandal in the olive oil industry where they cut the oil. Uh, so it's very important to get a pure olive oil. And, and so if you can stick with a cold pressed you know, minimally processed oil, I guess, theoretically, you'd be getting the best of both worlds. You know, I think overall, when I advise my patients, for the most part, you know, the first several months, we don't even focus on this. We say, hey, look, generally, avocado oil and olive oil are considered very healthy oils. If you can afford them, buy them. Um, and we don't focus on it much more than that. From a clinical perspective, usually after that adaption phase, after somebody uh, really improves their health. And, you know, we're focusing on removing added fats. So although we may start very, you know, higher, more tolerant of fat, you know, generally we're trying to reduce butter, oils, you know, fatty, uh, uh, you know, just fats that people add to their diet because our focus is generally weight loss, right? So this concept of what to do about seed oils, I think it's it has a lot of issues with uh, sensitivities, both culturally, health-wise, in terms of uh, food sensitivities, um, and so it, and unclear data with regards to the differences between the mechanistic data, interventional data, and sort of the population-based data. Ultimately, the way I practice my, you know, in my practice, I say if I had to choose an oil, it would be avocado or olive if you can afford it. Uh, if you had to use a seed oil, can it be, you know? or vegetable oil, can it be cold pressed? And if you're fat adapted, do you need to add any oil at all? Right, so that's kind of the way we approach it. Um, and I'm not, 
you know, I, I think personally speaking, I don't remember the last time I had a seed oil. Right. So I that's my personal bias. I don't remember the last time I've even had it. In fact, I'm going to tell you in a little bit of anecdotal data, you know, back in the days when I was 350 pounds, you know, Chinese food was my favorite. General Tso's was my favorite food. When I walk into a restaurant that uses seed oils now, I don't know why I get I actually get nauseous. Really? And I have no clue why. I've looked into the medical literature. Is there something out there? Is it all in my head? Is it placebo? Is it placebo? <laughs> I don't know. But um, so, you know, there's my personal bias and there's my personal anecdote. So take it or leave it. But ultimately, I think I advise people um, and I say it's not really clear. If you can do avocado or olive, it's probably the best way to go. And uh, look, if you eliminate seed oils, you're eliminating a lot of processed food. So there's the added benefit of removing those and uh, transitioning cooking oils to kind of more recognized, healthier oils, maybe nominally more healthy. So uh, I don't know if that's helpful, but I don't have any clear answers, but that's what I do. And that's how I advise my patients. Next, let's hear from Raphael Sortoli. Now, Rafi has a master's degree in molecular biology, and he's a PhD candidate in neuroscience, and he's the co-founder of the Nutrita app uh, and the host of the Break Nutrition podcast and blog. Now, one of the things about Rafi is he knows the science. He knows the studies very well, and he takes those studies, um, including a lot of the mechanistic studies, to come up with hypotheses and ideas, very forward thinking about how linoleic acid can be contributing to obesity, um, why we see some of the results we see in the studies. So a lot of what he has to say is, is sort of hypothesis and unproven, but, but based in, in sound science and kind of hard to argue with in a lot of ways when you hear him explain it. And this is why I really wanted to have him on because he really focuses on the mechanistic side and what the mechanistic data might mean for uh, clinical applications, uh, clinical interventions. So while all the science may not be there, uh, it certainly is intriguing and interesting to see how what role omega-6 plays in obesity, what role it plays in insulin resistance, what role it plays in cancer and oxidation, uh, and and sort of how to synthesize all those thoughts. Because it can be confusing when you don't have the, ev the strong evidence to support it, but you've got the mechanistic data uh, to raise hypotheses. So let's see what Rafi has to say about all this. Well, seed oils are um, an increasingly important topic in the, in the low-carb world, and I think for good reason, because if we're going to talk about um, eating a lot of fat, we should make sure that the fat we're going to eat is, is of high quality and is not going to harm us. So I think that's the first thing that... Uh, can sort of bring everyone together on the question of, you know, are seed oils uh, healthier or not? It's, it's certainly an important one. So I think the, the main point that I would like to start out with is that these fats from a chemical perspective, the fats that characterize seed oils are pretty delicate. And that's because they have a lot of what we call double bonds. And these uh, sort of uh, kink the fat. It can make it sort of uh, not a straight line like a saturated fat, but bend at multiple points. And this gives it, you know, it's good and it's bad side. So it's good side would mean that it can bend in certain ways, which is going to have important signaling roles in the body. So that's great. And that's what you have in EPA and DHA, the omega-3s. And that's also what you have in the omega-6s omega like linoleic acids. Sometimes their shape means that they oxidize fast and that they send a very important signal. That's all part of normal physiology. So these things aren't inherently good or bad, but what sort of makes them good or bad in the clinical sense, in the practical sense, is, okay, 
when we start consuming them in certain amounts, in amounts that maybe we haven't seen uh, through our evolutionary history, or we don't have a lot of modern examples, what happens then when we change the context? And that's where we start to see some, some of the uh, science that's controversial, precisely because I think what we're dealing with is an inverse U-shaped curve for a lot of the effects of linoleic acid, which is the major seed oil. So an inverse U-shaped curve, you can imagine that. It's like if you imagine a smiley face, it's the, the sad smiley face, basically, right? So it's this shape where if we're trying to understand, for example, the effects of uh, linoleic acid, so the main omega-6 on obesity, what we might end up seeing is that at a very, if you have a very low intake of polyunsaturated fats, namely linoleic acid, so you're probably going to be more obesity resistant. That's the opinion I have. If you keep going up, let's say you go above 10% or something, and you get into that 20% linoleic acid intake zone, maybe you know, 10, 15, 20, kind of depends on the person. I think you're going to see a shift towards their propensity to get obese. Carbs might become more fattening than they otherwise would be. Fat might be more easily stored than they otherwise would be. And then if you go even higher at a very higher intake of linoleic acid, you might see something uh, that resembles sort of a slimming effect. And there's actually independent mechanisms that we can call upon to explain that. So why would we see maybe linoleic acid being slimming at a really high intake that I would, I would argue would be quite harmful above maybe 20, 30%. That wouldn't be healthy, but you would still see slim people. That might be because they uh, initiate uncoupling at a very high level. And uh, uncoupling is sort of like, you know, when you're in a car and you're accelerating and you uh, shift gear, you have to, for a moment, uncouple the engine and recouple it so it can pass the gear. And in that moment, you're just not spinning the wheels, you're just spinning the engine, which is creating a lot of heat. So that's sort of what can happen in our cells. And when you uncouple, um, the what's happening in the fat cell, for example, you can burn up a lot of that fat and you're not going to have to use insulin resistance to resist uh, ingress of calories into the cell and you're not going to store it because you're actually burning it up. So that's maybe what's happening at higher levels. In the middle part, the part we sort of care about for public health is this sort of level of intake, which you pretty much get on a Western diet, you know, which is a sort of above 10%, maybe 20%, um, uh, linoleic acid intake, you know? When you're talking about percentage, you mean like percentage of your total calories or percentage of your fat calories? That would be percentage of your, of your total calories. Okay. Just to clarify. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty, pretty high intake. You know, if you're on a 40%, um, you know, 40% fat diet and half of that is, is coming from linoleic acid. Like if you're cooking with sunflower oil and you know, you're having mar margarine and you're avoiding butter and you're eating a lot of nuts, you know, that, that can get, get pretty, pretty high pretty quick. So at that level, what's happening is that the, the, the fat cell is seeing this fat in a different way than it sees a saturated fat, for example, or even a monounsaturated fat. What it's seeing is something that can get into its mitochondria and exert less resistance. So it, it initiates less resistance to insulin. It produces less reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species is the signal the cell uses to say, hey, there's a lot of substrate, a lot of energy coming in here. Let's stop uh, letting so many calories in. So let's become resistant to the action of insulin. That's what the cell is going through uh, normally. But when you introduce linoleic acid or a very polyunsaturated fat, that signal is dampened. You don't produce as much ROS as we call them, right? Reactive oxygen species. And you don't get that limiting 
behavior that you that you have. So essentially, your your fat cell is just more. It sort of sucks up fat more easily than it otherwise would. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one 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 thing we see. And it, when the intake is very very low, well, that just leaves monounsaturated and saturated fats, and those fats create more reactive oxygen species essentially. So they make it easier for your fat cell to resist the entry of more calories. So that's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they hear reaction, reactive oxygen, <laughs> reactive oxygenated species, ROS, that they, they think of that as a bad thing because oxidation is bad yeah. and, and that, you know, linoleic acid can lead to oxidation. So this sounds a little counterintuitive. So is it, help explain that a little bit. Yeah. So the most basic thing that's going on in your body is things are oxidizing and reducing, oxidizing and reducing. So this is basically the exchange of electrons between different chemical entities. And that is just the, the basis of life in, in all organisms, really. It's, it's super, super old and, and basic. And because it's so fundamental to how your cells, uh, cells stay alive, generate energy, it, it's going to, by necessity, have an impact on the things that are essential for your organism, like maintaining enough energy to stay alive and and do the things evolution has programmed us to do. So when it comes to how much energy you have on board, it's maybe not so surprising that the food you eat is creates the signal for how much of the food you should be eating, right? It's like a self-contained system. And when we start messing with that system, so we have these reactive oxygen species, which are like hydrogen peroxide that people might have heard of even in cleaning products and superoxide. These things are generated and the cell sees them as a signal to say, hey, let's, let's, you know, um, let, let's start limiting what can come into the cell. Now, this process of generating reactive oxygen species happens everywhere in your body, pretty much in every cell, and your fat cells are no different. And the way they use them is to understand how much to store, because that's basically what they do. They're the energy storage function of the body. And so there's so many different fatty acids that circulate in your blood, in food. And no wonder that evolution is is taking advantage of these things and the different ways in which they can signal. So it's important we consider them as entities carrying information and and sort of cellular behavior rather than these amounts that have calories. It's just not the useful way to think about them ultimately, I think. Okay. So, yeah, so that's interesting. So you talk about the inverse U-shaped curve where the majority of what we're getting is sort of in that middle curve, and specifically about obesity. Now, I think that's interesting because it also depends on, you know, where does the food come from? Because when you try and talk about obesity, it's hard to talk about one specific nutrient um, because are you getting your omega-6s from from nuts and seeds or are you getting it from Mm -hmm. potato chips and desserts and processed foods and, you know, other things? Do you think that makes a difference in how we interpret the data? Yeah, I think it does. I think there are enough uh, other chemical entities in food that can uh, even maybe mitigate some of these negative effects I'm talking about. Um, There's an example with mongongo nuts. Uh, There's a a particular conjugated um, uh, fat that uh, gets turned into CLA, which people have heard of as conjugated lino, uh, uh, what is it? Conjugated linoleic acid. Yes. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So That's you'd right. find that in dairy products and this thing has all sorts of good effects on, you know, insulin sensitivity and fat loss. And, and you realize that, um, yeah, there are definitely opportunities for other fats and even other just polyphenols or other compounds to interfere 
with these individual effects of fat. You see it, for example, with uh, um, colorful vegetables, which have anthocyanins and other elements that can interfere with our absorption of glucose, for example. So that's one case where we can see it with glucose and not just with fatty acids. Mm. Um, so there are definitely confounders in that sense when we're looking observationally at where you get your omega-6s from, definitely. But it's also true that the isolated effect of omega-6 is also pretty powerful. Um, it's, it's a powerful signaling molecule, and you don't want too much of it, I think, in, in your diet. Yeah, but then you said at the extreme, you think it can, it can work as an uncoupler and actually help yeah. with weight loss. Um, but yeah. that's probably still not a good thing at that level. So is that yeah. where you would be more concerned about the oxidation potential of it, even with active weight loss? Yeah, I would be very concerned about the cancer potential because um, linoleic acid gets broken down into 4-hydroxynonanol, 4-HNE. And this is a very potent uh, signal to the cell that things are breaking, essentially. And it can, it's in, I mean, it's involved in everything from extreme pediatric obesity to atherosclerosis to uh, cancer initiation where you need, you know, minimal amounts of linoleic acid in the rodent diets to even get cancer started easily in the lab. So there's certainly things beyond obesity. And I think it's very tempting um, when you see studies where, oh, there's for a two-week period a transient reduction in, in liver fat, for example. And it's, it's very hard because it's a controlled trial. It's randomized. There are a lot of reasons to pay very good attention to that. But once you have maybe a, a more informed mechanistic picture and you understand the time frame you're setting yourself in, then you can question those results. And the, the key, of course, is to make sense of all the results, not just those that are, agree with your, your theory. I want to interrupt for just a second because this is a great point that Rafi makes, that that we really need to be open-minded about studies that don't just fit our bias, right? We have to um, we have to give equal credence to the studies that don't fit our bias, and we need to pay attention to the details. Is it an animal study or a human study? Is what's the time frame of the study? Is it just a couple weeks or is it a couple years? Um, and the dose. So the dose is really important, especially when we're talking about animal studies, because the dose that causes cancer for linoleic acid in a rat. How do we, you know, relate that to a human? And and so there are some trials like the Minnesota cornea experience, uh, experiment and the Sydney diet heart study, which showed at least equal or increased uh, mortality from those eating more uh, linoleic acid omega-6. So was that a cancer increase? Well, I don't think that that really played out. So we don't have human evidence that it increases cancer risk, but we do with animal evidence. So how do we, you know, how do we... Um, correlate those. And that and that's part of um, really focusing in on the quality of the study. So I'm glad Rafi brings up that point. So let, let's keep going here. If um, this theory, which a lot of what I'm speaking about today is generated by Peter Dombrov, Dom, Dombrovsky from, from a hyperlipid blog, um, who's come up with a lot of these ideas. And really, it does come down to explaining how you can have an obese population and also see some results in some studies where you're seeing essentially a slimming effect. And the question is, can you reconcile those things? Because you have to, really. That's, that's the name of the game. And I think you can if you understand that if its effect on the fat cells. And something that even Ted Naiman has, has brought up extensively is, you know, how the fat cell reacts when it's very big and distended. It's, it's, uh, it's hypertrophic. That's not a fat cell you, you want around. And that's something linoleic acid can do, actually. It's very good at getting the fat cell to store fat. 
And when you get your body to store fat efficiently, well, you can kind of avoid diabetes. That's what we see with insulin, right? We see people take tons of insulin. They store a lot of their excess energy. And I look at your blood sugars and probably some inflammation marks. And I'd be like, hmm, this is pretty good. This is in a good direction. You look, you know, down, down the line, five years, your cord study, and you're like, oh, more people are dying. So once we understand the function of fat, we can make sense of these results. But it's it's difficult. It's not easy. And it's not a complete story yet, I think. Yeah. And then you also have to balance that with the large observational trials, which have their weaknesses for sure, nutritional epidemiology, yeah. food frequency questionnaires, but that show on average, those who eat more omega-6 seed oils have fewer um, heart events, cardiovascular events, and actually live longer than those who don't with all the caveats. So trying to balance that, I mean, I yeah. think one interpretation would be, well, it really can't be that bad if you know, if they're able to sort of overcome it with their other healthy lifestyle, their, you know, healthy user bias, et cetera, to have fewer cardiovascular events and, and actually live a little bit longer. Um, so how do you kind of mm-hmm. make sense of that, that conflicting evidence? That's, and it's important to, to mention that the observational data, you can find what you just mentioned, which is effects whereby the polyunsaturated fats uh, look, look good. Um, there's no doubt about that. I think Darius Motsafarian has has you know used that evidence heavily to make his case for omega six fats. But I think with everything observational, um, you certainly have a healthy user bias. I mean, it's it's not hard to see that the advertising is certainly going in one direction, right? Where people are going to be you know uh, primed to to the people who are going to make the healthier lifestyle choices are also those most likely to buy these oils. So I think that we can explain a lot through that already. But even though we should still try to, like you said, maybe maybe they're not that bad or that their effects are mitigated or something like that, right? So we, we, we do have to make an effort to untangle that. And I think we... I think we can, um, but we might need some better evidence than the purely observational stuff. So we have some uh, really big studies like the Sydney Diet Heart Study, um, which was an intervention. There was a control group and, um, you know, uh, these people were, were followed for about five years. So um, this is a pretty substantial trial, uh, especially for nutrition. Those are very rare. And there we sort of saw a very interesting signal. So what we saw is that the, the people eating, you know, in the intervention group, eating, you know, most of the, the high omega-6 diet had an all-cause mortality of um, just under 18% versus just under 12 for the controls. So, and, and you see this divergence in the all-cause mortality right from the start, which is interesting because this is sort of what you'd expect in a more, uh, in, a, in a case where there's something toxic, where it's a linear like alcohol, actually. That's how you, it, it's not like there are these threshold effects. Alcohol is linearly toxic. Mm. And I think there's a lot of mechanistic, uh, there's a good mechanistic basis to make that case where above a certain level, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Who knows exactly that the amount of linoleic acid in the diet just becomes it, it's it's fulfilled all its signaling roles, and from there on, it's just going to add to some you know some oxidation, some unnecessary inflammation, and maybe that's why we see the shape of this curve that we see, which is a you know it's a, it's not a massive hazard ratio. It's about one point six two, but that's sixty two percent relative risk increase. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something we want to really pay attention to if we're going to give that to billions of people, you know? Right. So, so, yeah. so taking all that and sort of boiling it down to practical advice, let's look at the person who follows yeah. a low-carb diet. So 
you know, doesn't eat the junk food that has um, the omega-6 fatty acids, cooks with, you know, saturated fat products, but goes out to eat two or three times a week. And when they go out to eat, what they're getting likely is cooked in linoleic acid. Do you worry about that person getting that amount of exposure? Or do you think that's below sort of the toxic threshold and they don't really need to worry about it? It's it's hard to say. And the reason is, is that um, there's where we're dealing with a population of people nowadays that are so ill as, as a baseline. I mean, the amount of people who have metabolic syndrome, who have some sort of autoimmune disease, something like that, that these relatively small amounts of linoleic acid, and you know, this is compounded when they're heavily oxidized like they are in, in the restaurant business and fast food chains. It's hard to say that these people don't have immediate reactions. I mean, of course, this is hard to disentangle, but headaches, um, uh, GI upset, uh, brain fog, these things are not surprising uh, if you were to ingest, you know, gram amounts of, of essentially what are toxic, uh, you know, peroxyl radicals. I mean, that's really what they are. So I think that I would be worried about even some acute effects, although they're not life-threatening, they're very uncomfortable. But chronically, that's where I would actually worry because they are so ubiquitous. And Many people don't really know about them, except if they're choosing the oil with which they cook, but they're not necessarily aware that they're having a lot of it in the restaurant food. And it's really difficult to avoid. You have to, you know, be put on a brave face and just ask the waiter or ask the chef to, to cook with butter or olive oil or, or some better alternative. And that's really your, your only way out. But I think in terms of a health investment, it's, it's definitely uh, one worth making. Next, let's hear from Dr. Ben Bickman. Now, hopefully you're familiar with Professor Bickman as he's been on the Diet Doctor podcast twice now, episodes number 35 and 63. I highly recommend you go back to listen to those because he, he gives great insight. But he is an associate professor at BYU where he, he specializes in insulin resistance and metabolic disorders, having already authored a number of papers on these topics and with ongoing research projects and educating the students at BYU on this topic. He's written a book about it, Why We Get Sick. He's uh, part of Insulin IQ, which is a... a online coaching program to help people with insulin resistance improve from that manner. Um, and he's, he's a thoughtful scientist, first and foremost. He understands the literature, he understands how to assess the literature, and he understands how to see both sides of the story and try to come to a conclusion about how you weigh the science. And I hope you appreciate that approach from him here. So let's hear what he has to say about vegetable oils. All right, well, Dr. Ben Bickman, thanks for coming back to join us. And I would love to get your thoughts uh, in general on vegetable oils and as they relate to health. Yeah, yeah. So I know I, I get the interest in this topic. Um, and in part, I get it because I've been on a journey of interest as well. Um, while my big journey and where I've now become, I've gone from student to teacher is insulin and insulin resistance and fat cells, where I'm still very much a student wanting to learn more and very humble in what I'm learning is in the context of seed oils. So that's almost a good, that's a good place for me to start. Uh, and that might be why I kind of fall somewhere in the middle when it comes to seed oils, where I, um, there are those, and maybe because they just know so much more than me, who, who posit seed oils as the origins of all, you know, I'm being dramatic here, but you know, the origins of all disease, you know, most diseases are a result of seed oils. Then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is not only are these not harmful, they're in fact beneficial. 
Um, now, so where do I fall in? And, and so, Brett, I'll just kind of riff a bit, and you direct me as needed. So, uh, I think one, they they're, they do appear to be an essential fat, although that might be debated. But linoleic acid, which is really the fat that we're pointing a finger at in this story, um, it is it is everywhere in animal fats. So there's no avoiding it. Of course, we're eating, you know orders of magnitude, I think 56,000% more now than we were 100 years ago, because we're, we're refined oils have just worked their way into everything. Um, uh, what I think is important is how we're getting it. Maybe this is a comfortable place to start, where um, when we're getting it from refined foods and, and just straight kind of cooking oil, versions of soybean oil and canola oil, etc., we are not only getting way too much, of course, but even if we were getting more modest amounts, we're not getting it the way nature intended. And I don't mean to say that and sound like I'm a hippie. I don't look like a hippie and I'm not. So it's not like I'm saying we can only eat natural food and only the way nature intended. No, no. But but there's some there's some wisdom there. There's something to be learned there where when we eat linoleic acid from animal sources, it always comes with antioxidant vitamins like, say, vitamin E. And I don't mean to tell people we should be taking vitamin E all the time because if you take too much antioxidant, it actually ends up hurting you. But I think there's something kind of genius about this where if you can get linoleic acid and keep it as linoleic acid, the body knows what to do with that. And in fact, Stephen Cunane, who we often invoke in the low-carb realm because of his incredible work on ketones and Alzheimer's disease, found years ago that linoleic acid and the seed omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid are the highest burned fats in the brain for energy, and it makes them actually ketogenic. The brain makes its own ketones from these polyunsaturated fats, linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. But my distinction that I'm, I'm trying to make is it stayed as linole linoleic acid. In other words, it didn't turn into a lipid peroxide. And, and maybe that's because it had antioxidants to keep it clean. It helped maintain the integrity of that fatty acid. In contrast, when we're eating it from a refined source, um, not only reading too much, but let's put a um, volume or consumption amount to the side, but we've robbed away the natural, perhaps, antioxidant mechanisms that would have allowed the cells of the body to just use the fat in its pure form. We've changed it now into a lipid peroxide. And that, to me, is the real heart of the matter. And uh, where I, t I cannot deny that linoleic acid has a problem beyond its caloric value, you know, where, where um, th there would be a view, and I get it, where they would say, no, it's soybean oil isn't really a problem beyond the fact that we just eat too much. I can, I can nod my head to that a bit and acknowledge, yeah, we definitely eat too much. But I can't overlook the fact that it truly is the most readily oxidized, turning into a lipid peroxide. Um, of the lesser saturated um, or more saturated fats, this becomes a lipid peroxide very, very readily. And lipid peroxides are remarkably damaging or pathogenic molecules. And then what I can speak to is the relevance of a lipid peroxide and its other, you know, metabolites in how that changes the way a fat cell behaves, where we know that these lipid peroxide metabolites from linoleic acid force a fat cell to grow through hypertrophy. It limits the potential for hyperplasia. And so if you have fat cells that are being told to grow because there's sufficient energy and sufficient insulin, 
You have to have both of those. If there's ample linoleic acid and its peroxide metabolites, it's forcing that growth to happen through hypertrophy, and that is a sick way to get fat. So that is that is something I'm speaking to with a higher degree of authority um, because I those are actual published manuscripts. We are literally doing studies in my lab now looking at some of these linoleic acid metabolites and how they change mitochondrial function in muscle cells and fat cells, and it is not good. It is something that goes beyond um, the saturation of the fat um, and, and just the pure amount of calorie. And maybe one last thought, Brett. A lot of people will say that linoleic acid is not a cause or that it is a cause of insulin resistance, and that's one I am more lukewarm on. Not to say that it can't be relevant, but I know for a fact that when you treat um, cells with linoleic acid, they will not become insulin resistant. Um, it doesn't happen in primary cultures or when you're feeding it. Um, well, when you feed it, it does start to change, but I think it's because of what it does to the fat cells, like in the mechanism I just mentioned, where if you're forcing fat cells to grow through hypertrophy in the context of sufficient energy and sufficient insulin, yeah, it makes sense. Um, but directly at the level of the cell, I can make a cell any cell, to my in my experience, insulin resistant if I give it a lot of insulin. I can make it insulin resistant if I give it a lot of cortisol. I can make it insulin resistant if I give it a lot of cytokines to promote inflammation. So those are primary causes of insulin resistance. If linoleic acid is relevant to, to clinically relevant insulin resistance, and it might be, it's not, I don't believe it's going to be a direct effect of the linoleic acid at the cell. I think it's going to be more of an indirect effect given what it's doing to the fat cells and the hypertrophic fat cell becomes of course itself insulin resistant and pro-inflammatory and those two play into promoting or spilling the insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body. Yeah, I think that's a great answer and and my summary would be that context matters. The context of the food source or the the liquid oil source and what happens to it um, once it both in the production and, and inside the body. But the other part is the context of what else is going on with the diet. So I want to ask you about that because you said in the presence of enough energy and insulin that then um, the omega-6 fatty acids can potentially be detrimental to the fat cells, specifically linoleic acid, um, that it can cause it to grow improperly and lead to mm -hmm. insulin resistance. So to flip that on its head then, if someone... Um, was in a hypocaloric diet, or if someone had low insulin levels, then would you think the effects, the negative effects would be um, attenuated or just simply not present in that context? Yeah, yeah, what a great question. Yeah, I, I can't help but think, um, yes, in, in the context of metabolic function, yes, I think in, in a state of low insulin and low insulin, uh, sorry, low energy and low insulin, that the negative effects of linoleic acid peroxides um, or related peroxides at the fat cell would be mitigated, that it wouldn't matter as much if you're not allowing adipogenesis because there's no stimulus for adipogenesis. The stimulus is for lipogenesis or hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia. So yes, I think those consequences would be mitigated at the fat cell and then insulin resistance in a broader level. But having said that, I'm not saying that the lipid peroxides wouldn't be damaging in other ways. Um, you, I know there's, uh, there are other things that these lipid peroxides can do to, say, alter mitochondria as, as it's altering the lipid profile in cardiolipin. So I'm not saying even then 
that that now we can give the linoleic acid a, a clean bill or, or, or a green light. No, but in the context of this metabolic disarray that's occurring with insulin resistance, I do think it would be mitigated if not removed completely. Uh, another way to think about this whole topic is just to think about evidence in general. So, I mean, at, at your heart and at your profession, you are a scientist. And a scientist's main job is is sifting through the evidence and trying to get to better evidence and design design experiments and, and hypotheses for better evidence. So when you look at a topic like seed oils, where there is a pretty big difference between mechanistic studies and randomized controlled trials and observational trials, some showing some significant um, concern, like mechanistic studies that they, they can be oxidized and pro-inflammatory and can, be, can have dangerous effects to humans. But when you look at observational trials, a number of them show actually a slight health benefit to those who um, eat more vegetable oils. And randomized controlled trials sort of show like a combination of both. Some show mm-hmm. worsening, some show better health. Um, so as a scientist, when you go into a minefield like this, how do you just sift through the science and try and prioritize to get to get to the truth or get to better evidence? Yeah, so I think there are you've, – you've said it well, actually, very well. So we have at the, at the weakest end of it all, we have the purely observational studies, which is just here's a questionnaire and then tell us what you've been eating. And then we have one step better, which is a clinical study. Well, in fact, that would be maybe the best. And somewhere in the middle would be the mechanistic studies, because who cares if you identify a mechanism and it in no way reveals a pathology in the clinical study, you know, no actual negative effect. So maybe I'd put it in that order. The observational is the worst, the clinical study is the best, and the mechanism explains what we see in the clinical study. Or, or it doesn't, and it was just wasn't that relevant. It was only relevant at the level of a cell. Um, which is too artificial of a model. So yeah, on the observational end, um, and this is no surprise and nothing new to your audience, I know, um, there are so many potential biases that get their way worked in, that, that get worked into those kinds of studies, like healthy user bias, where a person that is tending to eat less processed foods, which is typically the common source of, of refined, oh wait, I'm actually working against my that argument. Um, well, people who are avoiding saturated fat, they are in, in favor of, say, seed oils because they've been told it's healthy. They're engaging in other healthy habits that just don't get accounted for in the questionnaire that they've been given. So I give very little weight to the observational studies. In fact, I think that's one of the plagues of modern nutritional science. I, I don't think epidemiology should be used in nutrition. I think it should only be used in, in true diseases, um, not just nutrition or not nutrition. Um, now, there are some big clinical studies. Again, no surprise to your audience, the Minnesota coronary experiment, the, the Sydney Heart study, which, which was almost as good as you could get in, in controlling an environment over many, many years, a long enough period of time to actually measure death. You know, you and I both know most clinical studies are a few weeks, maybe a few months at the most. You just can't measure death in a few months. Mm-hmm. But these studies were, were, were very big. And of course, the bigger it gets and the longer it gets, the more potential error you introduce. But they, they totally refuted the idea that these polyunsaturated fats were better and in, over, over eating saturated fat. And in fact, suggested that the focus on, on polyunsaturated fat at the expense of saturated might in fact have been harmful. Um, so, so that's what those two studies showed, that it was actually perhaps a net negative 
to, yeah. to cutting back saturated and focusing more on polyunsaturated. Now, one mechanism I wanted to touch on where, where you'd mentioned inflammation. In fact, I, I ought to have mentioned this at the outset. Inflammation is something I'm familiar with in the context of insulin resistance. That has been a focus for me since my postdoctoral work 15 years ago. Um, I think too many people misunderstand the relationship of linoleic acid to inflammation, um, where uh, they they know that what they do know is that linoleic acid can be converted into arachidonic acid, and then arachidonic acid can be converted into pro-inflammatory and pro-clotting molecules like uh, prostacyclins and or prostaglandins and thromboxanes, and and so th- because that pathway exists, they assume that linoleic acid is pushing that pathway forward. And, and that doesn't happen. Um, linoleic acid is converted to arachidonic acid by nature of regulatory enzymes. And, and, and it's, it's a need-based system. So we're breaking down linoleic acid into these potential pro-inflammatory metabolites as the cell may need them. And the cell does need them. These are molecules that are essential to survival. Inflammation, of course, is essential to re- recovery and, and healing and immunity. Um, so I don't think it's accurate. I might be wrong. I don't think this is a system we can push forward with more linoleic acid. Because remember, linoleic acid has alternative fates, including just simply being burned for energy, which mitochondria do perfectly well um, and, and very well, even at a higher rate than saturated fats. So whether it goes into arachidonic acid and then so on or further depends on the need and the activation of those regulatory enzymes to actually pull that process along. If linoleic acid is in fact promoting inflammation, and it very well could, I would say it's likely because of its conversion into um, lipid peroxides. And we know that macrophages will very hungrily engulf lipid peroxides, immediately sensing this peroxide as a harmful pathogenic molecule, and then doing its job, it will engulf them, and then it will become a foam cell as it has engulfed too much. This lipid peroxide will start to activate. The macrophage is essentially saying, hey, there's too much of this. I need help. And that is inflammation. It's when one immune cell starts to call out for help from other immune cells. And now we have systemic inflammation. So if linoleic acid is driving inflammation, and again, I recognize there could be a mechanism I'm not familiar with. Here's a mechanism I think it would be. It is that it's because of it, it having been converted into a lipid peroxide, the macrophage without a doubt engulfs that, and that would then in turn stimulate inflammation throughout the body. So I don't think it's a direct effect. I think if you remove the immune cell, uh, the phagocyte eating that lipid peroxide, I don't think there is inflammation. That is a great scientific answer, um, trying to get down to the mechanism beyond a, a, maybe a overly simplistic mechanism. And also, I, and I fall into this trap too, speaking of oxidation and inflammation as if they're one and the same, which I, they're not, they're completely not, but sometimes yeah. we get lazy and talk about them as one thing. And you did a wonderful job of separate, showing how they're very separate and, and, and two different things, but one can lead to the other. So I think that's a very important yeah. caveat. Next, let's hear from Amber O'Hearn. Now you might be familiar with Amber from previous Diet Doctor podcasts. But just as a brief introduction, she has a bit of an eclectic background. She she has a background in theoretical mathematics, cognitive psychology, computational linguistics, and evolutionary nutrition and biology. And she's been living a plant-free lifestyle since 2009, and she's been very vocal about the benefits it's given for her. 
But one of the things I like about her is the way she really sees things in context and likes to understand um, the different permutations and nuances of the data and really try and put it in a context for what it means for human consumption as it applies to something like omega-6 and, and uh, linoleic acid. So let's hear what Amber has to say about this topic. There are many different reasons, I think, that people give for their dislike of or suspicions about seed oil. And so one of them that we might get out of the way <laughs> right away is the the one that m the reason that I don't eat seed oils is simply because I'm on a diet right now that doesn't include any plant components so you know seed oils are from plants and I don't uh, when I stopped eating plants I got remission of a lot of uncomfortable symptoms and that doesn't mean, though, that I've tried them in isolation. So I can't give any kind of guarantee or certainty that if I took my otherwise carnivore diet and added canola oil to it, that that would worsen my health. I'm not, uh, I can't give any certainty that it would from that point of view. But if, if it did or if there were to be a kind of carnivore-based reason. A lot of the reasoning that people like to give for carnivore diets have to do with anti-nutrients, for example. So it doesn't, wouldn't really have anything to do with linoleic acid per se, but there may be uh, components that are still residues of the oil that might, uh, people might have intolerances to or that might, for example, induce intestinal permeability. But I don't think we really have any strong foundation for saying that other than from these sort of theoretical principles that people are now using uh, um, hypotheses about why the carnivore diet might work. And I don't want to go in, into any kind of nature-based fallacy about saying that seed oils are new and therefore they must be bad for us because I think something being new in the diet can mean that we don't know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's bad. <laughs> um, and the other thing about the carnivore perspective from that is that animal sourced foods also can have linoleic acid. So beef would have quite little. It doesn't have very much polyunsaturated fat at all. Maybe 5% would be a normal level for beef of the whole com composition of the fatty acids. But pork and chicken, for example, depending on what they're fed, could be quite a bit higher. And I'm not really persuaded that linoleic acid in and of itself in the context of a ketogenic diet would necessarily be bad. On the contrary, well, we can talk about this as a in, in pros and cons terms, maybe, because as you have brought up, there, there are associations between cardiovascular disease and uh, more saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fat. And even if you look at the ketogenic context, you, when we have, where we have at least one study, and I can't remember the author off the top of my head, uh, comparing saturate, uh, a mainly saturated fatty acid ketogenic diet versus a mainly polyunsaturated, and, and I think it was corn oil that was being used it was definitely high in linoleic acid. And they actually argued that the polyunsaturated fatty acid diet was better because it was more ketogenic 
which isn't surprising from things we know about how polyunsaturated fatty acids influence liver fatty acid oxidation. And also, well, what they called it was better insulin sensitivity, but this is a point that is a cautionary point. I think what they mean mostly by that is that it increases glucose tolerance. If you're on a high carb diet, increased glucose tolerance may actually be really beneficial. But if you're on a low carb diet, increase, increased glucose tolerance could actually be detrimental. Uh, as long as we're talking about this temporary effect of while you're eating it. If you then went, if you did something and then you went back onto a regular high carb diet and your glucose tolerance was impaired in the long term, then we might worry about something that happened. But, but basically, when you're on a low carb diet, you want your, your, all of your body to be optimized for using fat as, as fuel so that all of the glucose that you have can be used for the brain and a few other tissues that need glucose. So if you're, if you're actually having lower, higher glucose tolerance, that could be equivalent to adipose tissue being more readily uh, willing to, <laughs> to put it in non-functional terms, more, more um, your adipose tissue might take up more glucose and then expand. You could become fatter because you have more more glucose. And so a lot of the arguments around, oh, is, is linoleic acid actually bad have to do with this, um, the effect of polyunsaturated fats on, um, on insulin resistance in a, in a way that is positive on a low carb diet. Another aspect that I think comes into it is the whole omega-3, omega-6 balance idea. And I'm not sure that I put much stock into balance. I think we need a certain amount of omega-3s and we need a certain amount of omega-6, linoleic acid being an omega-6. Um, but the argument, I'm, I'm going to try to steal Manit, but what I'm understanding or I'm hearing people say is that the more omega-6 you have, the more inflammation you are going to create. And I don't think that inflammation is driven by substrate. I don't think we make more inflammation just because we have the, the materials available to do it. I think if you are in a situation that is creating the need for inflammation, because inflammation is just the healing response, and you don't have enough omega-3 or omega-6 to make uh, arachidonic acid, which is then used for uh, inflammatory prostaglandins, then <laughs> maybe you have a bottleneck on inflammation and adding more, uh, more linoleic acid might allow more inflammation to occur. But then I'm not sure that the linoleic acid was actually being a bad guy in that sense. Um, so there's, there's the, the polyunsaturated fatty acid part, the omega-6 part, and the linoleic acid part by itself. And there are, I think, many different reasons why people are arguing that they aren't healthy. And I think my, my kind of bottom line statement about all that would be the, the epidemiological data that we have is in the context of a high carb diet. The effects that it has in a ketogenic diet have both been described as beneficial and detrimental, and we don't know which. And I really think that we, we ought to um, 
try to get more data about what's going to happen in that context before we condemn it uh, just for being, you know, you know, at the at the base level, just for being un perceived as unnatural. So I think that was a great answer that really helped frame it within a context because you can get isolated mechanistic data and you can get observational data in big populations. But the context of both of those is important, that the mechanistic data might be in a cell culture, might be in animals, and the context is in people eating usually a high-calorie, high-carb diet. So the question is, does that apply to other areas? And it seems like you're saying, we don't know. I mean, the answer isn't yes or no. The answer is we don't know. So would you say it's, it's fair to say, in general, the benefits of omega-6 have been overstated and the harms of omega-6, especially linoleic acid, has been um, overstated? That's a good question. I think the benefits that have been uh, put forth in terms of risk have not been shown to necessarily apply to the case which we care about. Um, and I'm always a little bit skeptical of epidemiological data, even when <laughs> the population that you're caring about is the one that was under study, but much more so when it's not. Um, the detriments, the, I, I am actually really quite taken with the ROS theory of obesity, which sounds like a non sequitur, but <laughs> the idea is that uh, the, more, the more oxidation that is uh, made when fatty acids are burned in the mitochondria, the more signaling that it gives for satiety, for example, and um, it shuts down insulin sensitivity because you don't want, because the cell is saying, I've got enough. Um, and so the, the reason that that's uh, topical is because it mechanistically it appears that polyunsaturated fats don't give a very strong ROS signal. And so some people are, um, experimenting or exploring the hypothesis that polyunsaturated fats are actually going to lead to obesity because, because they're allowing the adipose tissue to expand and, and in turn um, not perpetuating a feeling of hunger longer than if you had used, you had burned saturated fats. I really like that idea. I'm partial to it, but I do think that it would be overstated if we were saying that we knew for sure that that's what's happening. Right, right. Well said. Um, we have to be cautious about the strength of our convictions based on the strength of the evidence, which sort of on both sides of the equation, probably not all that strong. But So let me ask you a personal question then. If you go out to a restaurant and you're going to order a steak, um, does it bother you if you know that steak was cooked in canola oil? Yes and no. <laughs> I think that the amounts are too small to be concerned about. I've never personally had a reaction to something cooked in a restaurant. I'm very fortunate in that I don't have acute reactions to plant matter. So for example, if, uh, analogously, if something had a bit of gluten on it, I don't get a reaction. However, um, I think I can taste it now. So even I've had burgers out uh, in, in 
I have a vivid memory because it was so terrible. <laughs> I was at an airport and I was hungry and I decided I would have a burger and I was quite sure that what they were serving me was a pure beef burger. But I know that it, it just had this residue of oil on it that made it inedible to me. And I, I, I probably developed some sort of snobbery around that. But I didn't, I didn't really feel like it was hurting me. It was just hurting my sensibilities. You've trained your taste buds well, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, there you have it. Six experts with different areas of true expertise with their opinions and their scientific evaluation on seed oils, vegetable oils, linoleic acid, and where it fits in what we should consider a healthy diet. Now, I know talking or listening to six people with very different opinions can make things more confusing sometimes and, and not really help you decide whether you should be eating seed oils or not. So hopefully something that somebody said here resonated with you um, that you can connect to. I mean, my take home is, look, I don't think seed oils by themselves are the cause of obesity, insulin resistance. I mean, it's, it's the excess calorie consumption. And that comes from maybe some of these seed oil containing foods that have high carbs, high fat, high salt, um, ultra processed that we eat too much of, right? Like we know that that's not really much of a surprise. But at the same time, I would never recommend somebody eat seed oils. And, and I don't eat them personally. I don't recommend my patients eat them. I don't like that they're new, that we didn't evolve with them. I don't like how they're made. I don't like the, the mechanistic uh, concerns behind them um, and the mechanistic data. But I also have to admit the observational data um, that shows benefit tells me that the magnitude of the harm can't be that bad. Um, so if someone wants to eat seed oils, if it's a part of their diet, if it's for convenience, then sure, that's okay. Um, but I would still caution them to limit the amount. And I would also say that we have to be more cautious about how we interpret the polyunsaturated fatty acids need to replace saturated fat. Because I think a lot of that, a lot of that data um, comes from studies that are hypercaloric and a mixed high carb, high fat diet, which I don't think people should be eating, period. So if you're following a more sensible and healthier, lower carb diet that's not hypercaloric, then what does what harm does saturated fat have? And there, I think the answer is none. And if any, it is minuscule, but I really think it, it comes down to basically none. So then we don't need to replace anything. So then what role does polyunsaturated fatty acids have and linoleic acid have? Not much. And again, if you want other oils, I'm a big fan of extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil, which if you can't if you can't afford them, then I actually recommend the saturated fats. It's a more evolutionarily consistent uh, food. But do I say that with strong conviction of harm based on the evidence? Well, when you when you look at the magnitude of the evidence and the the totality of the evidence, it's hard to say there is a strong magnitude of harm. I still have significant concerns and as do a number of the people we interviewed today. And the other interesting factor, which we didn't explore too much here, is this concept of um, a sensitivity to it, a personal individual sensitivity to it, which doesn't show up well in the data, but shows up in a number of anecdotal stories that are pretty profound. Uh, so I think that's something we have to take into account as well. Just as pe people can have gluten sensitivity, I think they probably can have linoleic acid sensitivity. Um, and it's hard to tell somebody they don't, right? The, the science doesn't support it. It must be wrong. No, we can't say that. We have, people have to experience for themselves if they're going to have acute effects. But that's different from saying a population-based harm over the long term. So again, there's not one overarching conclusion. 
other than my sense to say there's really not much of a point <laughs> for linoleic acid in our diet. Um, and I don't believe the health claims are as strong as they are. And I don't believe the harm claims are as strong as they are either based on human evidence. So you can decide for yourself. Uh, we have a whole guide on this at dietdoctor.com. And you know, in all of our recipes, we really don't use um, linoleic acid and polyunsaturated fatty acid vegetable oils. Uh, we prefer more evolutionary sound uh, foods that we, we don't believe are harmful. So you can look at our recipes and we will direct you uh, to some really tasty, wonderful, excellent food that doesn't require any vegetable oils, all right? And if you're gonna eat out from time to time, you can always ask for things to be cooked in olive oil or in butter or in you know other types of fats if you're concerned about it. But personally, I think if you're eating out a few times a week and getting some, some linoleic acid, then the, the magnitude of harm is minimal, if any, as long as you're not someone who has a, a clear sensitivity to it. So hope that was helpful. Uh, and we'll see you next time here on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thanks a lot, everybody.